0: In the 1980s, there were roughly 200 lesbian bars. Today, there are fewer than 30. That's according to the Lesbian Bar Project, which started as a fundraising campaign and now works to amplify and support the remaining spaces. We hear from one of the creators of that group later in the show. While many gay bars cater to men, spaces for queer women have dwindled. For some of you, these spaces are important places to build community and more.
1: I'm a lesbian in Washington, D.C., and I frequent, as you are, the local lesbian cafe, bar, and club. The owners, Joe and Rach, have become friends who've provided space for me to hold a book club. They've wisely realized that lesbians are looking for community, not just a good time. As someone who came out late in life during the pandemic, as you are, has been the key to me for building a support network of queer friends. I stayed in D.C. for Christmas last year, and on Christmas Eve, as you are, was open. A few of us who gathered there put together a puzzle
0: and listened to holiday music, and it felt like family. Two years ago, Krista Burton began a journey to find out why lesbian bars are disappearing. Her book, Moby Dyke, an obsessive quest to track down the last remaining lesbian bars in America, came out this week. Krista traveled to 20 self-proclaimed lesbian bars, speaking to patrons and bar owners. And after the break, she tells us what she learned, and of course, we hear from you. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into. Stay with us.
2: Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you.
0: I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices
2: that resonate. (laughs) Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, How did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series.
0: Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the conversation and welcome Krista Burton. She joins us now. Krista, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. So when we say gay bars, some people think that includes all LGBTQ plus people. One member of our text club writes, I often feel there are subtle and sometimes not so subtle vibes that lesbians aren't welcome at a typical gay bar. So explain the differences and how you came to your list of 20 bars.
2: Sure. Um, I came to my list by... Thinking about the umbrella of gay bar and then deciding that I would only go to bars that were self-proclaimed lesbian bars or that were now queer bars but had historically always been lesbian bars.
0: And you gave yourself a couple of rules for the book. What were they?
2: Um, The rules were that I had to talk to at least two strangers every time I went. Um, Each bar got two or more visits so I could make sure that um, I didn't visit on an off night. Um, and I think that was it.
0: So the two or more strangers, (laughs) why was that, why was that important to do?
2: Um, because I'm actually quite shy around strangers and I knew that if I didn't get the party going at the bars, that, um, no one would come and approach me and just speak organically to me. So I knew that I needed to have it happen.
0: And what were you trying to glean from those conversations? I just wanted to know why people thought
2: the bars were closing and why they were at the bar at that particular moment and what they got out of the
0: bars. Well, I'd love to have you read a passage from your book, and this is about the first lesbian bar you experienced. Sure. The Lexington Club was the
2: first real lesbian bar I ever set foot in. My first girlfriend, who I'd met while at college in Minneapolis, had moved to San Francisco for her job. I was 21, newly out, completely in love with her, and selling my eggs to pay for my tuition and life. Flush with cash from my own ovaries, I would visit her in San Francisco regularly, sometimes twice a month. We would go to the Lexington Club. The first time I walked in there, I just, I couldn't believe it. I had been to gay bars before in Minneapolis, but this was different. A whole bar full of people like us? A whole bar full of people who probably
0: also for sure liked women? (laughs) So what did that experience mean for you and and how you thought about community? It
2: just showed me that there was a whole world out there, like a whole queer community that I did not know about and uh, that was already thriving. And it was time to
0: jump in. (laughs) We're talking to Krista Burton. She's here to talk about her new book, Moby Dyke, an obsessive quest to track down the last remaining lesbian bars in America. What have these bars meant for you throughout your life? Oh,
2: honestly, these bars have meant everything to me. Um, I'm, I've been out for almost 20 years, and I have spent the majority of my social time um, in queer spaces. Um, not always specifically lesbian, but a lot of time in lesbian bars and I've made a lot of friends I've met partners
0: there I've my entire social groups are all from like lesbian spaces I'm going to talk about some of the bars you visited because you went to 20 in total what was one of your favorites
2: oh I oof, that is that is very difficult <laughs> um but one of my very favorites was the back door in Bloomington Indiana um and I can tell you more about that yeah, if you yeah. want. Yeah,
0: yeah. Describe describe the interior for us first. Sure. Uh, the interior of the back door is
2: kind of like tacky on purpose. It's like zebra-printed walls. It's got like feather boa-framed pictures of famous drag queens and Dolly Parton. There's a lot of like DIY-feeling glitter paint. It's very cute. And it's huge. And what
0: about the feel of it once you get inside? What's the vibe?
2: Incredibly homey, incredibly friendly, very laid back. Um, I saw the best drag show I have ever seen in my entire 20 years of being queer and out
0: at that bar. And that's saying something. (laughs) Did you find any, I suppose, through lines or connection between the experience you had at the bars you visited? Something that felt familiar in each place? I mean, there's like,
2: Superficial stuff. I kept noticing that these bars, so many of them are painted this very particular shade of like semi-gloss blood red. I I can't explain it. I don't know why, (laughs) but I would say fully three-fourths wild. And then there's always like twinkly lights. There's very frequently like filthy bumper stickers or like slogans like plastered around. A little bit of clutter.
0: Never heard anybody. Talk about the clutter. Because one of the things that emerged to me in reading about these places is that there tends to be quite a bit of tchotchke hanging around. (laughs) What do you think that's about?
2: Um, I have a personal theory, and it's just that um, nobody get mad, but I think that queers in general are – pretty sentimental just like have a little note of that inside them and so you know we all have like a collection of like mugs that say something funny or dirty on them and we all have like probably got something that we're hanging on to from our exes and the bars just kind of reflect that like a love for history and a love
0: for especially queer tchotchke nonsense (laughs) So you went to some of these bars with your husband, who's a trans man. And in the book, you describe a conversation you have with him about who's welcome in these spaces before visiting all these bars. What sort of anxiety did you or your husband have around whether you'd be accepted or or received?
2: Sure. Well, it's a little little tricky because I am a
0: lesbian and
2: Davin is trans, and we together— sometimes are perceived, even in queer spaces, as uh, a couple that might be straight or a couple that's there to look for a third. And we've both separately and together grown up in queer spaces. And so it's a little bit, so, sometimes I already know how so, how we look. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always just want to be
0: like, also gay, hi, <laughs> hello. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so that was the, the fear or the concern. What did you actually experience once you once you visited these places together?
2: I mean, I just need to chill out. It doesn't matter. No one's thinking about you the way that you're thinking about yourself. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I didn't experience that really. Um, the only thing I would say is that I did. I went to half the bars about with with Davin and half on my own, and I did notice that the likelihood of someone being really, really receptive to talking to me was dramatically increased when he wasn't around. And that also makes sense. Um, it's much easier to talk to one stranger than two. So,
0: you, you talk about a couple of moments where you felt unwelcomed in these bars because you say you didn't look... Queer enough. Mm-hmm. You describe one situation where you ask if an ATM is working, and someone snaps back about you not wanting your husband to know about you being at a lesbian bar, and you describe this as phobia. Explain what that is.
2: Sure, um, femphobia is kind of like a problem in the queer community. Um, it's, it's a. I think it, I think it stems from misogyny. I think it's a celebration of more traditionally masculine traits. Uh, in queers than uh, feminine ones. So I identify as a femme, a high femme. uh, And sometimes that means that my my peers do not perceive me as
0: looking queer enough and will assume that I'm straight if I'm in a bar. Mm. You did end up dressing differently at one point in your journey (laughs) to try to counteract that. What did you learn from that experience?
2: Yeah, I was curious. I had, at this that point, I'd been to like 10 bars. And I each time I had dressed the way I normally do to go out, which is like doing my hair, the lipstick, painting my nails, like my usual very tight outfit. And I had noticed a wariness uh, when I approached people with my little notebook in hand, which I get is creepy. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I had noticed a little bit of a wariness uh, when they would eyeball me. And I thought to myself, I wonder if, if I dress in like obviously stereotypically queer clothing, if that would be like a little like radio signal that I'm, I am queer, I speak your language, I am safe to talk to you. And so I tried for uh, about 10 of the bars, I tried being in the most stereotypical outfit I could be in and it um,
0: sadly worked Hmm. We're talking to Krista Burton about her new book, Moby Dyke, an obsessive quest to track down the last remaining lesbian bars in America. We got this message from one of our text club members who writes, I am nearly 50 and finding a bar was a lifeline to feeling like I belonged somewhere. Many were safe havens for all, including youth who had lost their families and we all looked out for them. Now they are disappearing and I don't think the younger generation even knows what's being lost. Well, in a moment, we talk to the founder of the Lesbian Bar Project about her thoughts on why these spaces are disappearing. We'll be back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books.
1: This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions
0: this week on npr's book of the day podcast we are discussing books centering mothers so call your mom then tune into the book of the day podcast from npr the day's top headlines local stories from your community your next podcast binge listen you can have it all in one place your pocket download the npr app today on npr's throughline we cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt
1: because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop.
0: And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a
1: catastrophe.
2: Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from one of you. I really appreciated... The lesbian bar that used to be in
2: st louis but it's since closed and i think that's really sad i don't really know why all these bars are closing but i think it's because people don't want women and especially lesbians to gather and but i really miss lesbian bars i really liked having that community
0: Chrissy, you include a lot of your own personal experiences in the book, and one being that you grew up Mormon, and your parents struggled with accepting your accepting you after you came out. What did this trip mean for you personally?
2: This trip was, I started it out wanting to just have a great time, visit the bars, talk about what was happening, and make a lot of like funny jokes to make everybody laugh. But um, it became really apparent to me as I was visiting the bars, that I couldn't separate my own story with how I was seeing the bars. Um, and so it, it kind of morphed from there. I started to start to reckon with my own past and put it into the book as well. And what did that
0: reckoning look like? What shape did it take?
2: It took the shape of me just kind of writing down everything that had happened and realizing that, oh, I could put the whole thing in here. Um, here it is. Here's me growing up Super Mormon here is coming out to my parents here's what happened when I was when I was young it was uh, really interesting and I, I got to talk about uh, growing up in Wisconsin uh, because I visited a bar in uh, Wisconsin
0: mm. there's a, a moment in the book that really stays with me you're traveling with your mom in the car and I don't remember exactly how the issue of domestic abuse comes up maybe you're talking about someone you know and this is after you came out and, and your mom turns to you and says something along the lines of, I'd rather you be with a man who beats you than with a woman. Mm-hmm. And I, what a difficult thing to hear from a parent. I mean, what was it like for you to revisit your history while also trying to find the joy in, in these spaces that still exist?
2: It was really, it was really interesting. Like when I wrote that down, I started bawling because yeah. I was—it was just me alone on my couch typing into my laptop. But I had never told that story before, and never really thought about how that had affected me. Um, and then when I read it, I was like, "Oh, mm. this is awful." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, it made me appreciate how far I've come and how important those kinds of spaces were to, to to give you kind of a chosen family. Um, when your own family has, it, it wasn't permanent, and we eventually kind of made our peace. But uh, at the time, I, I felt almost totally rejected by my family.
0: Have you found a, a new, I don't know if peace is the right word, but maybe it is, peace with that history and in coming to a place of being able to like that That was the past, like I can leave it I can leave it there through the process of writing this book
2: i don't know if I left it if I really left it in the past. I think you always carry that kind of thing with you, um, struggling to be accepted by your family uh, when you're coming out that carries with me through all the time, not just like surface level it's not constant, but um, I think that affects you maybe for the rest of your life.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the main goals of this trip was to find out why these spaces are closing. And what did you find out? <laughs>
2: there are so many reasons why these bars... It's not funny. The, uh, it, there are so many reasons why the bars are closing that I i thought I would have maybe a couple solid reasons. But I found 10, 11, mm-hmm. 12 really compelling reasons. Uh, and a lot of them just intersected for why the bars are closing. Um I can give you some examples. Yeah. One I I had never heard of before was a lack of succession planning. Um, let's say you're, you know, a healthy person who owns a bar and then you suddenly die. No one's expecting it. And then whose bar is it? It's mm. no one's bar. And then I heard one I hadn't expected either, which is that it's just the hours are running a bar is really hard. <laughs> and I had actually re- I realized I had never talked to people who ran a bar before. And you're not home a lot. The people who are running As You Are, As you are Bar in um, D.C., they are there all of the time. And they love it. They love what they do. But I can't imagine never having a night where it's sweatpants <laughs> and you're at home, yeah. you know, eating takeout on the couch. Like, that just doesn't happen usually.
0: Well, let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from KT in Tucson.
1: Maybe we just don't want to go somewhere we're at risk violence when we come out or something like that, which happens frequently at those bars when they were open. So think about it. You go dancing, then you get beat up. Oh, no.
0: And a member of our text club writes, I fear that with the growing hatred towards LGBTQ and women in our society, these places will become a target of aggressiveness in the form of violence. We've seen so much of that lately. You know, last year, five people were killed in a mass shooting at Club Q. That's a gay club in Colorado Springs. And that was six years after a gunman killed 49 people at Pulse nightclub in Florida. Some bars have increased security measures because of these incidents. How much did you hear about safety when you visited these places? Because it's supposed to be a safe place for folks, but did they feel like it was safe?
2: Physically, they did feel safe, and at least that, it felt that way to me. Um, but I'm cis, I'm able-bodied, I'm white. Like, they felt safe to me, but I couldn't possibly say if they felt safe to everyone. I, some bars definitely were making more of an attempt to make sure that everything – rules are posted. There is security at the door. Um, people are – maybe they're security guards that even have something that says, if you see something, like, come talk to me. I'm here to help. And I really appreciated that. Um, again, I'll talk about as you are in D.C. Um, they are doing the most. I have never seen a bar be so emphatically interested in everyone's safety. Um, they told me that you can't have fun on, on the f- if you're feeling unsafe, and that's really true.
0: What did the owners tell you about how they're thinking about safety in their community? Not just about what happens inside the bar, but also what happens in the space around it. So if someone, like we heard from the caller who said, you know, you dance, you have a great time, and then you go outside mm-hmm. and you get beat up, maybe that's why we're not going.
2: That really could be true. I visited a couple bars that had windows, but the windows had been completely covered over um, to give you the, the feeling of a complete security inside the bars. And I think that one of those bars was in the Deep South, and I think they were really onto something because they knew that
0: outside was dangerous, but inside you were in your own little world, and that felt really loving. Let's add another voice to the conversation. Erica Rose is a filmmaker and the co-creator of the Lesbian Bar Project. It started as a fundraising campaign and now works to amplify and support the remaining lesbian bars. Erica, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. So you started this project in 2020 to raise awareness and to help raise funds for these bars after finding out how few of them were left. Why do you think lesbian bars are on the decline or have been? I mean, it's such a myriad
1: of complicated issues. I think that we can pinpoint a couple of the major ones. Uh, Gentrification is a huge issue that is facing uh, all small businesses across the country, and especially in coastal cities, and especially the businesses that cater to marginalized communities and are run by marginalized communities. It's also, you know, frankly, just a wage gap issue. Uh, We know that, you know, obviously women make less than men. Uh, Queer women make less than straight women. And a queer women couple, their combined income is less than a heterosexual couple. Uh, A lot of queer women are also parents. So if they do have any disposable income, that would often go to their families. And I think that, you know, in terms of just the move to online culture that we've seen in the past 20 years. Uh, Not just lesbian bars and queer bars are suffering because of that, but brick and mortar spaces in general have had to uh, shift
0: their uh, business policies because of that. Well, Krista, we mentioned as you are here in D.C. and last year, former workers of that bar emphasized it as an inclusive and safe queer space and then also Nobody's Darling, which opened in Chicago two years ago. In an interview with Eater Chicago, the owner said it isn't exactly a lesbian bar, but it is woman-centered and woman-focused forward. How much of the trend of queer inclusivity, how, how is that shaping the way these bars operate and, and their existence?
2: I kind of think that this is how we're going to move forward. I think the more emphatically welcoming you are to all people in the queer community, the better you're going to do as a business. Because if you are trying to just attract a very niche uh, subset of people, then anyone who is not in there is going to think like, can I be in here? But if you're saying, hello, come in, you are welcome, just be nice, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. be good.
0: Um, I think you're going to do a lot better. We got this email from Kit who says, it's not just lesbian bars that are disappearing. All of the gay bars in my area in Florida are gone. Erica, I know you're focused on lesbian bars, but what are you seeing around gay bars in their existence?
1: Yeah, I mean, they're definitely suffering as well, but I like to you know, also transcend this narrative of loss and disappearance and really talk about also the spaces that are opening across the country. You know, when we started the project in 2020, we were uh, able to find 16 active lesbian bars in the United States and then we were able to find a couple more uh, as the project continued and then many more opened but it's also important to contextualize where those bars are opening those bars are opening mostly in New York City in Los Angeles in Chicago which is very exciting but then we're also seeing you know uh, spaces in rural communities in the south and in the Midwest unfortunately uh, Hers in Mobile, Alabama, that we featured in our short film in 2021, closed, and that was uh, Black owned and run as well. And so I think that the closures of those spaces in the South and the Midwest is a microcosm of what's happening in America at large as we're seeing the wealth gap really um, expand uh, in comparison to wealthy, rich cities in the coast and then the cities that are, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of left behind in the Midwest and more uh, rural uh, communities. So I think that it's important to say like, yes, these are opening, we're seeing resurgence, there's like a demand for this, but then also be able to talk about why these spaces uh, in the communities that honestly need it even more so than anyone else where the stakes are so
0: high, why these spaces are closing there. Let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's what we got from Lauren in Boston.
2: I find that lesbian spaces tend to be organized by grassroots organizations, kind of tied to events. And what I think that that doesn't allow me is consistency in connection.
1: There's no casual space that I can access in my everyday life to meet people and talk to people who really relate to my experiences.
2: And especially for folks who are aging out of, you know, younger event type spaces or in their 30s, a lesbian bar could really provide a space where they feel like they don't have to show up for an event. So they don't have to kind of put on a face and they can really be themselves day after day.
0: We'll discuss community a little further after this quick break. Stay with us.
2: If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen
1: and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.
0: I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020, and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. uh, But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Let's get back to our conversation with another message we got from one of you. As a Black queer woman living in Boston, where I'm still waiting for a queer, woman-centric, lesbian bar to open, I find it harder to be in community with folks. Like I have, to, I have to give more of my capacity to be in community because we do not have a bar space available. So if I want to meet folks, I have to go volunteer. I have to join a board. I have to do these other things whose purpose is to not just hang out and have a good time. We're also hearing from you who are having a a different experience. Leah emails, I've seen a significant rise in pop-up style queer sapphic bar and club events in New Orleans. Groups with social media presence and staying power promote recurring parties that move from bar to bar around town instead of curating a physical space of their own. And another member of our text club writes, while I wish these spaces would remain open, queer and lesbian communities are seeing a significant increase in local folks putting on super inclusive, welcoming, and fun small-scale events. And that's a good thing. I'd love to see more of this. Erica, how are communities using small-scale events in lieu of consistent meeting places like bars?
1: Well, parties and meetups and pop-ups have always been part of queer culture, and they've always been part of the lesbian bar culture and have worked hand in hand with lesbian bars. So this is not anything new. I think that it's a fantastic way, uh, uh, to be cost effective and to, you know, as we know that bars, it's an exorbitant amount of money to open a bar, uh, and to maintain it. So it's a wonderful alternative, uh, if you're not able to secure a brick and mortar space and also, uh, folks might not, you know, want that kind of space and they want something a bit more fluid uh, and a bit more spontaneous like a pop-up and an event. So we're seeing that happen across the country and, you know, the bar hers I mentioned earlier uh, in this interview uh, is... They're not, you know, even though they shuttered their doors, they're going to continue to do the work to serve the Mobile community with pop-ups and events.
0: You've visited HERS in Mobile, Alabama, Krista. Alabama is one of the most restrictive states when it comes to LGBTQ equality. The state recently passed several measures, including criminalizing gender-affirming care for trans youth and barring transgender kids from using bathrooms that align with their gender identity. How do you think hers closing might affect the community there?
2: Um, this, hers closing is, that's so sad. Um, that truly felt like an oasis um, in Mobile. I just, that bar is wonderful, was wonderful. And uh, I think, I don't, where, where are the queer youth going to go is my, is my question about it.
0: Erica, you began the Lesbian Bar Project in 2020. How has the landscape of lesbian bars changed since then? You said, you know, you're trying to move away from this narrative of them disappearing, but what's changed?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the pandemic really made this possibility present that we could live in a world without queer women's spaces. And I think most people people responded to that as Uh, hell no, (laughs) we're not going to live that way. And we've seen such an exuberance and such excitement about coming back to the bars and generations who weren't able to go uh, before the pandemic are now coming out in huge numbers. And yeah, you know, to what I was saying earlier, we're seeing many spaces open in cities that didn't have bars for a long time. Like, you know, we talked about Chicago earlier. We talked about Los Angeles. Los Angeles, which is a haven for queer women in many regards, didn't have a uh, queer women's space or lesbian bar for nearly 10 years, which is pretty shocking. And we're seeing more spaces open up in Brooklyn. And we're also seeing how these spaces specifically are evolving. So... Uh, many spaces are de-emphasizing alcohol uh, as there's been more uh, inclusivity around the sober community. So we're seeing daytime hours, we're seeing coffee shops, we're seeing events. And we're also, what's really cool is that, you know, the lesbian bars have such a rich history of being places and centers for political action and organizing. And we've actually returned to that uh, functionality in many of these bars. And especially as we're seeing such hateful, and discriminatory, discriminatory rhetoric really plague a lot of our states. Mm-hmm.
0: Krista, how aware were the patrons at the bars you you visited? How aware were they of the history attached to some of these places? Were they aware that you know maybe political action took place here? Maybe these were safe spaces for youth as well, not just a place to you know have a few drinks and hang out with friends.
2: It really depended on the bar. I. Sometimes would walk into a bar and it would be obvious that from the history and the pictures that were all around the room that this was a bar that really emphasized what this place had meant to people. And then other places you would meet, you know, a couple, a couple twenty something queers who were maybe there for like maybe the third time and had no idea the history surrounding it and were just there to giggle and have a great time. But sometimes when I would talk to people, they would they would mention that they'd been coming to the bar for twenty years or um they knew exactly where they were and why they were there.
0: Erica, how how important is it to have spaces where you can have these cross-generational interactions where you may have the the 20-somethings alongside the people who've been coming to that same space for, you know, 20 plus years.
1: It's so important. I mean, I, to speak personally, I think I probably would have been Uh, way more comfortable in my own sexuality and my own identity if I had role models uh, that I could interface with when I was a child. And because our public school system, and we're seeing this even more so acutely today, uh, is does not prioritize uh, queer stories and queer history. We rely on this intergenerational dialogue that we find in the bars to get our history. And I just don't know how we can move forward as a society, as a culture, as a community, if we're not informed about our past and what these activists before us did to ensure that we can even be on the show today speaking about our experiences and our love of lesbian bars.
0: Let's go back to our voicemail and hear some more of what we heard from you. Hi, my name is Fawn. I'm calling from Louisville, Kentucky. Here in Louisville, we have a a group we call uh, Lesbian Tea Dance. We have been meeting for the past two years, monthly, and um, this is our solution for uh, the lack of lesbian bars here in our community. I live in
1: Oklahoma City, and I'm pretty proud of the fact that we have one of the few remaining lesbian bars in the country. I don't go to bars anymore. And particularly because this bar allows smoking and I can't be around cigarette smoke, but I also don't drink anymore. But just really interested in this phenomenon of the decline of these institutions and wondering about alternate ways to gather
0: Bond, Rhonda, thanks for leaving those message messages. Another member of our text club writes, I used to go to lesbian bars regularly. It was not for the alcohol and not even for a pickup, but the community it's nice to go someplace where you feel comfortable and al her emails, as a trans man in a state that is working to restrict many of my rights, lesbian bars have been one of my few safe spaces. I've been sober for a little over three months now, but the small hole in the wall that is primarily a lesbian bar called The Store has been lovely and hasn't judged me for coming to hang out and only drinking non-alcoholic drinks. Erica, not everyone wants to drink or, or even wants to go to a bar. How are people finding community and building community through other types of activities?
1: Well, we mentioned uh, pop-ups and meetups and there's so many community service and activist groups that uh, are organizing uh, Lex app, which launched as a uh, first an ode to the personal pages and ads that people took out in the uh, 90s in the Village Voice. It was first uh, kind of a homage to that and uh, people would write in their uh, personal ads and it was a dating app, but then it actually rebranded as uh, a community group uh, service. And basically people go on and they're like, hey, I'm looking for like a sober meetup or I'm looking for, you know, um, specifically trans events and activities. So we're seeing that and, you know, that's an awesome tool that is primarily an online tool that is a, in, uh, ensuring that people can meet up in person, so we're seeing different activities like that. And then, as I mentioned before, the bars themselves are opening their uh, doors to the sober community, and they're de-emphasizing uh, alcohol and uh, curating really high-end non-alcoholic cocktails, or you know, events that open, uh, you know, start earlier so that people who have children could uh, also participate.
0: Krista, what needs to happen to keep these bars, specifically lesbian bars, in business?
2: I think there's a bunch of things that they could do, and some of them are, a lot of them are doing them. Um, I think basic things like having a website with updated hours, I joke about this a lot in the book, um, would help. I think things like selling merch would help inside the bar because people, especially people who've been out all night, love to buy merch for their favorite watering hole. Um, I think they... A lot of them are doing this. They have events pretty much every night of the week. There's bingo, there's karaoke, there's drag. Uh, there's so many different things that you can do. Sometimes I went to a really cute uh, queer craft sale on a Saturday morning at uh, Blush and Blue in Denver. Um, they, they're just doing as much as they possibly can to get people in. And, yeah, I think that the, the sober menu right next to the, to the alcoholic menu is really helpful and welcoming. Erica, your thoughts?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just to go off of that, it's uh, something that we're seeing more and more different types of people who didn't feel like they had a space in lesbian bars before or come. And, you know, we always say with our project that uh, lesbian bars are not just for specifically people who identify as a lesbian. They're for all marginalized genders within the LGBTQ community. So that's inclusive of all queer women, regardless if they're cis or trans, non-binary people and trans men. And we're seeing that there's like specific curation of nights like for you know, non-binary people, for trans people. And it's really about opening up our doors
0: and being as uh, inclusive as possible. Another member of the text club writes, As a gay man, I find lesbian bars often have a very special place in my heart, despite not being the target audience. I find them politically more engaged, more diverse, more inclusive, and more relaxed than the vast majority of gay bars. And Nick emails this, Perhaps it's because the lesbian population feels comfortable enough, because it is normal, to just go to regular bars with straight and gay couples. I think the fact that lesbian bars are disappearing is a positive sign that they are not necessary anymore as a hideaway. I mean, when talking to people for the book, Krista, you heard from some of them that there may not be a need for gay or lesbian bars anymore, and that's because the LGBTQ plus community has become more accepted into mainstream culture. Does that ring true for you? I did hear that a lot.
2: I heard people hypothesizing when we talked about why the bars are closing that it was because the bars simply weren't needed and that we had all pretty much assimilated and we could go anywhere. And while I think that it is true that it is – I think the spaces are less – I don't want to say needed. I think the the like the absolute crushing, desperate need for there to be a lesbian-specific space, I think that need has dissipated slightly. However, I think that the want for those spaces to be there is still huge. Huge. Like I still want to go to a bar where – I am surrounded by queer people and pretty much only queer people. Erica,
1: your thoughts? We talked a lot about uh, assimilation as we started the project, and I think that especially in 2015 with Oberfeld, that the most privileged members of our community were able to assimilate, which is in a way positive. But I think that, you know, when we did this, when we uh, launched the project, we did kind of like a rough estimate of how many queer women are in the United States. And there's around 8.5 million. And the fact that we have fewer than 30 bars to serve 8.5 million is a reflection of society's value of queer women. And it's frankly pretty low. And I think that there's something, you know, as Krista was saying, it's really transformative when you walk into a space that really prioritizes you. And that is what we are ensuring uh, continues.
0: That's Erica Rose, a filmmaker and the co-creator of the Lesbian Bar Project. She's moving the project forward by looking at these spaces internationally. Also with us, Krista Burton, the author of Moby Dyke, An Obsessive Quest to Track Down the Last Remaining Lesbian Bars in America. Erica, Krista, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.
2: Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear
1: them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A.